For more than 25 years, Father Bede Griffiths, an Oxford-educated Benedictine, has lived in India and explored ways in which Eastern religions could enrich his Christian faith. Western Christians, in increasing numbers, have sought him out at his ashram in South India. He has also shared his insights and experience in lectures and workshops and in acclaimed books such as The Golden String and The Marriage of East and West. Father Griffiths spoke at a seminar sponsored by the North American Board for East-West Dialogue. The board is affiliated with Aid Anter Monastère, the missionary organization of the Confederation of Benedictine Abbots, headquartered in France. The seminar was held at Savior of the World Seminary in Kansas City, Kansas. Father Griffiths' first presentation is on the necessity of dialogue with the East. I would like to begin with the chanting the Gayatri Mantra, the most sacred mantra in the Vedas, and it is used at the beginning of sacred discourse. And the meaning of it is, let us meditate on the glorious splendor of that divine light. May he illuminate our meditation. us in the mood to reflect on our Christian faith in the light of the Oriental tradition, mainly Hindu, but also Buddhist, Taoist, the whole Oriental tradition. I believe that the world today is at the beginning of a new age, and I think the Church also is at the beginning of a new age. You all know the movement which has been taking place in Western science, how physics has begun to discover that matter is not the solid substance it was supposed to be, it is a field of energies. And within that field of energies, they see that also there is consciousness. And psychology has begun to discover that the human consciousness is not limited to the ordinary level of human consciousness, there's a transpersonal psychconsciousness where we can go beyond our limits and open ourselves to a transcendent consciousness. And so the Western world is opening itself up to the Eastern world. And many, as you know, are discovering Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism as a way of life. And I feel that the church today is challenged by these two movements, the movement of Western science, which is really a revolution after centuries of materialism, mechanistic universe, we're discovering an organic universe, an opening on the spiritual world, and at the same time, we're discovering the whole tradition of Eastern spirituality. And how does the church respond to this? Well, I want to suggest that the Church herself is at the beginning of a new age. For nearly 2,000 years, the Church has been moving westward. 
we've all inherited a Western tradition of the Christian faith. And only today are we becoming aware of this Eastern tradition and that it would be possible to express our Christian faith not in terms of Greco-Roman philosophy or of European thought, but in terms of Vedanta, Mahayana Buddhism, Taoism, in terms of the Oriental tradition. And that, I feel, is the challenge of the church today, whether we're prepared for this new age. And I want to suggest in these talks how we can prepare ourselves for such a change. Now, I think we can learn a great deal from the tradition of the church. As you know, Christianity came out of a Semitic world, out of a Jewish culture. Jesus was a Jew, he spoke Aramaic, went to the synagogue, went to the temple, celebrated the Eucharist entirely in the Jewish tradition. And yet Christianity was at the meeting point of that Jewish tradition and the Greek tradition. It's profoundly interesting, really, that Jesus taught in Aramaic, as far as we know, and that the apostles, the first apostles, spoke in Aramaic, but the New Testament was written in Greek. Christianity is at the confluence of two cultures, the Jewish Semitic culture and the Greek culture, so that it's always been a dynamic power. The gospel is not confined to one culture, it was at a meeting point of two cultures. And what happened was, within a century, the church moved out of the Jewish Semitic culture into the Greco-Roman world, and our whole faith and the whole church was organized along the lines of Western tradition of the Greco-Roman world. I don't know whether you all realize the extent to which the church and all the churches are Western in their whole structure. And perhaps as a comment on this, it's worth reflecting that after hundreds of years of missionary endeavor in Asia, hardly 1% of Asia is Christian. After all this, uh, missionaries are full of zeal at preaching the gospel and organized in the most wonderful way with all opportunities offered them, yet not 1% is converted. Why? Because we presented the gospel in terms of Western culture, and ask any Hindu today, he will say, Christianity is a foreign religion. That is their objection. So, we are challenged by the fact that ours is a church which has been structured along the lines of Western culture and specifically of Greco-Roman culture. Our church is organized in dioceses, and a diocese was simply a province of the Roman Empire. We still keep the same word taken from the Roman organization. And it applies to the liturgy. The liturgy, naturally, it comes from Palestine, it comes from Jesus himself, his own words. But the structure, the form of it, has developed along Western lines. In the Eastern Church, you still have a more Oriental tradition. The liturgy of St. John Chrysostom and so on has a very rich Oriental character. But the Roman liturgy has always been rather sober, realistic, typically Roman, and Western. And we've inherited that Western liturgy. 
And then in theology, our theology came from Palestine was in, in Semitic terms, but it was translated into the language of Greek philosophy. And all our dogmas today are expressed in terms of Greek philosophy. We speak of three persons in the one essence, of two natures in the one person, all nature, person, essence, substance, all terms of Greek philosophy, translating the Christian message into the abstract language of theology, a necessary, important task, but still conditioning the, the gospel, you see, in terms of the Greco-Roman world. And then, of course, we had the organization of the church. It had Rome as its center, which was the center of the Roman Empire, and it developed its organization along the lines of the Roman Empire, and it had its canon law, which developed along the lines of Roman law. So we've inherited a Greco-Roman church, and the fathers expressed their theology in terms of Platonic philosophy. Later, Aristotle was discovered, and St. Thomas Aquinas expressed the Christian faith based on the Bible, illumined by Platonic philosophy of the Greek fathers, St. Augustine, and then articulated in the language of Aristotle. And that was the great achievement of the Middle Ages. And we inherited that theology of St. Thomas right up to the present century. When I was studying theology 40, 30 years ago, we were still expected to use the theology of St. Thomas as the basis of all our teaching. So that is the situation of the church up to the present day. It's a Western structure, Western in its liturgy, in its theology, and in its organization. And the Vatican Council, the Second Vatican Council, came and it opened the church from this narrow, somewhat narrow, though very profound tradition, opened it to Western culture as a whole. The Constitution on the Church in the Modern World opened the Church to all the movements of Western culture, Western still. And the decree on ecumenism opened us to other Christian churches, and all the work of the Reformation was made open to us. But thirdly, of course, the Declaration on Non-Christian Religions opened the Church for the first time to other religions, never before had the church taken a positive attitude towards other religions. And so our whole situation now has changed. We're open to the culture of the world, we're open to other Christian churches, and we're open to other religions. And that is the challenge which faces us now, how to build on this foundation which has been laid by the Vatican Council. Well, as I say, Christianity developed along those Western lines for all these centuries. But we should also mention there was a movement of the Eastern Church in the former Syrian Christianity. When I was in Kerala for 10 years, I was a member of the Syrian Catholic Church. We celebrated our liturgy in Syriac. And it was a very interesting experience to see Christian faith expressed not in these Greco-Roman terms, though it was influenced by the Greek to some extent, but in really Semitic 
terms. You felt very close to the Bible, to the original source of the Gospel. And Syriac is a, really a form of Aramaic. It's very close to the language which Jesus spoke. And that Syrian church, from the 5th to the 10th century, spread right across Asia. There were hundreds of monasteries and bishoprics right across Asia to Pekin, to China. And it spread also to India, but in the rest of Asia, the Mongol invasions and later the Muslims overwhelmed it and scarcely anything remained. But in India, the Syrian Christian church, they're both Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant, still remains and is a very vital force. So there is an Eastern Christianity, but it's Middle East. It's not Far East. It's a Semitic. We felt very close to the Muslim. In fact, in our prayer, we prostrated just as a Muslim does, on the knees, the head touching the ground. And many things were obviously uh, of the same culture. But that is not India. That is not the Far East, you see. So it doesn't take us very far. And now we've got to go beyond Europe, beyond the Middle East, and face the challenge of Asia and the Far East. Now, the pioneer in this, as most of you will know, was Robert the Nobili. In the 16th century, this Italian nobleman came to India, lived as a sannyasi, wearing the kavi, sign of renunciation, and going above all castes, and studied Sanskrit and Tamil, the language of South India, and tried to express the Christian faith in the language of Vedanta and of Tamil philosophy. It was a wonderful pioneering effort but it didn't last for long. Within a hundred years, the church returned again to her Western forms, and the church in India today is almost entirely Western in its structure, in its theology, and in its way of life. So, the pioneer attempt was made by De Nobili. But then, the rest of the world began to become conscious of the Oriental tradition. Sir William Jones founded the Asiatic Society in the 18th century and did a great deal of work translating Sanskrit into English. And then Max Muller in the 19th century produced the Sacred Books of the East, which are still a valuable source, translating the main scriptures of the East into English. So gradually the West has become conscious of this Oriental tradition. And now, of course, in the 20th century, there's been an explosion. Communications have opened the Eastern world to the West, and we're all now exposed to Hindu, Buddhist, Sufi, other communities all over Europe, all over Asia. We can't avoid it anymore. It's challenging us. And as you know, many Christians, many Catholics, are deeply influenced by these new the other religions. Thousands come to India every year in search of an experience through meditation which they find in a Hindu ashram or a Buddhist monastery or some other group of that kind. So the movement is going both ways. Western people are going to India and the East to learn of Hinduism and Buddhism, and Hindu and Buddhist and, and Sufi teachers are coming to the West and teaching them doctrine here. So we're in a new world now facing this. And in our small ashram in the south of India in these last 10 years, 
it's been most moving in a sense, you know, to find people coming from all over the world, from all five continents and at least 50 different countries, and all of them in search of God, you could say, of an experience of God. And that is the key to it, you see, that the Oriental always sees religion in terms of experience, whereas the Christian and the West tends to think of it in terms of dogmas, of moral laws, of a system, and each has its value, obviously. But today, people are looking for an interior religion, for an experience of God. There's a rather amusing story. As I was told there was a priest in North India who was studying Hinduism and made friends with a Hindu professor. And at last he felt he was intimate enough to be able to ask him. And he asked him what he thought of the Christians, Christian churches and so on. And he hesitated to reply, but at last he said, well, if you want to know, I think you're very good people and I admire all the work you do, but I can't see that you have any religion. <laughs> you see, for him, religion is meditation, is inner experience. And he sees us with all our good works, but he doesn't see us sitting meditating like a yogi in Padmasana, you see, and that is religion to him. That's by the way. But it does show, you see, the difference in the approach. Well, now, there is our background, and now we have to ask ourselves, what is it that the Oriental tradition can give us? What change will it make in our lives, in our thought, in the whole structure of the church? And I would say the first and fundamental thing is that the Oriental tradition is always orientated towards experience, the experience of God. For instance, in Dharmashala, where the Dalai Lama is, they give lectures on Tibetan Buddhism regularly. And I'm told that they always tell you, unless you assimilate what you've learnt in the lecture by meditation, make it part of your own inner life, you're wasting your time. It's no good just getting theories, information about Buddhism. You must learn to assimilate it, to meditate it, to make it become part of yourself got to experience it, you see. So that is the dimension that the Oriental brings to us, this dimension of, I would call it, contemplative experience. And all theology, and not only theology, but all life has to be orientated towards this contemplative experience, this experience of God. That is the, the basic character of the Oriental tradition. And this is where I feel that our monastic calling comes. The monastic calling is a call to contemplative experience. You see, other orders of the church have their work to do. And it's true that a monk may undertake a parish work or a school, a college, so many other things. But in that, he's no different from any other religious order or congregation. The unique calling of a monk is to be dedicated to seek God, as we say, as St. Benedict says, to the experience of God. Our calling is that all our work, whatever it may be, is orientated towards contemplative experience, the experience of God. And it applies to all work. 
And here it is, I think, that the monastic calling has a meaning for human life as a whole. You see, what has happened in the Western world is that work has become almost entirely separated from spiritual experience, from contemplation. Contemplation and action have been separated. And consequently, work no longer brings spiritual fulfillment, and it becomes positively alienating as a result. And that is our situation, that work tends to alienate people from themselves and from God, from the source of life. And so all work has to be restored to its relation to contemplation, to the experience of God, to find God in your work, whatever it may be. And so also with study. In our monastic life, we have time for work, we have time for study. And we may study secular sciences or philosophy or psychology or whatever, but the same way that study has to be orientated towards contemplation towards the experience of God. And we all know how difficult it is. Once you get absorbed in these studies, they carry you away and you no longer relate them to the real end of your life. You get distracted from it. And yet our monastic calling is to be bringing it back. All that we do, all that we study, bringing it back to contemplation, to the experience of God. And thirdly, prayer. Now, prayer need not be a contemplative experience, and I would honestly say that most religious prayer is not a contemplative experience. It can be an experience of prayer, of openness to God in many ways, but very often it doesn't bring you into that state of oneness where you experience the indwelling presence of God in your heart, and that is the real end of prayer. So work, study, prayer, have all to be orientated towards this experience of God.